2: The famous verse inscribed on a plaque at the base of the Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. But do we really all agree on what that means? Or if we flip it around and say, don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, what does that mean? Well, that's what we are here to debate. This is another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. And here on the stage, we have two teams of two members each to argue over this motion. Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. We have a Texas mayor. We have a man who has written laws on immigration. We have a former congressman and a journalist who has written about immigration who will be arguing this out and trying to change your minds because that's what this is. This is a debate in which you, our live audience, are the judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before the debate and once again afterwards. And the team that has changed the most minds will be declared our winners. So on to round one. Round one, we have opening statements by each debater in turn. Speaking first for this motion, Tom Tancredo is a former uh, Colorado congressman who sought the 2008 Republican nomination for president to bring attention to the issue of illegal immigration. And while the language of this debate is, is a little bit spicy and to a degree metaphorical because we know that the side is not against all immigration, it's not that absolute. You did nevertheless sign up to argue for this side. That's right. Don't give us. And Tom, so in a sentence, why have you identified yourself so powerfully? with this battle on illegal immigration. Frankly,
0: you look at it and begin to think about the ramifications of of immigration, both legal and illegal, and they are fascinating. It is really one of the most intellectually stimulating areas of public policy I think we can possibly talk about.
2: we'll let you go. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Tancredo.
0: A great deal of mythology has built up around the Statue of Liberty, around uh, the Emma Lazarus poem. And a lot of that mythology, of course, is just that. It's mythology. But unfortunately, the whole idea of immigration has a sort of a nostalgic appeal to us. But we can't confuse that and develop true policy today based on mythology. And, and you know, some of the myths that we have to dispel, I think tonight's a good place to do it, is You know, first of all, the Statue of Liberty was not a gift from France that was designed to explore the wonderful idea of open immigration. Indeed, it had nothing to do with immigration policy. Um, It had everything to do with extolling the virtues of a republic. In fact, the statue was called Liberty Enlightening the World. It was not called Liberty Inviting the World. For a long period of time in American history, we had what I would think was and believe is a rational policy. It was rational for us to bring in a lot of people, especially uh, during the heyday of American immigration the 1890s, 1900s, a lot of people who were low-skilled, low-wage people. Why? Because, of course, we were building the Industrial Revolution here. They were fueling it. It served a purpose for the people coming, and it served a purpose for the people here. There, There is another myth I want to try to dispel quickly, and that is, that immigration has always been sort of a straight line increase from the time America started and, you know, until today, that's it's always just been going up. Absolutely untrue. We had periods of high immigration, we had periods of low immigration. And you know what happened during the periods of low immigration? People used that time to assimilate. We can with- have a massive amount of, of immigration into this country as long as we have assimilation along with it, because assimilation is not occurring. It's not occurring to the extent that we need it to in this country. We desperately need, perhaps more than any country in the world, we need things to hold us together, to think about as being Americans, to connect together, not pull us
2: apart, and I'm afraid our immigration policy is doing just that. Thank you, Tom Tancredo. Our motion is... Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And here to argue against the motion, I'd like to introduce Julian Castro. He is mayor of San Antonio, Texas. He is a superstar in his party. uh, He was the youngest, at the time, the youngest member ever elected to the San Antonio Council and is now the youngest mayor of a major U.S. city. Although, Julian, you know that if you stay in that job a lot longer, people are going to stop saying (laughs) that. I'm
3: already starting to get the gray hair. (laughs) Ladies
2: (laughs) and gentlemen, Julian Castro.
3: Thank you all very much. Thank you. The United States, of all of the countries in the world, and all of the countries throughout history, has defined itself as the nation that has taken in folks from around the world and allowed them to pursue their dreams, to reach their American dream, and to become someone from someone who was poor and huddled among masses to someone who was successful. And so it is that I believe we need to continue to welcome not only the wealthy but the poor from other countries. We need to do that for several reasons. The first is that immigrants are vital to our national economy. Uh, Immigrants actually uh, found companies at almost twice the rate of native-born U.S. citizens. Companies founded by immigrants in the year between 1995 and 2005 actually created 450,000 jobs in the United States of America, in one single year, uh, they generated $52 billion in sales Uh, in industries like uh, high technology and engineering, that the number of folks who start those companies is at 25% nationally, and in Silicon Valley, it's at 52.4%. And remember, it is a false distinction to think that the folks who found these companies start off as wealthy. Oftentimes, they don't. And I believe that it is important for folks generally to assimilate. What we have seen is that from time to time, there has been this uh, very intense concern about balkanization. Benjamin Franklin famously said that we should rid Pennsylvania of the Germans in 1751. We had the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798, the Chinese Exclusion Act. The reason that we have succeeded as a nation is that we have been able to overcome those impulses. And I believe that we need to continue to overcome those impulses for the future. Congressman Tancredo asked, what's going to keep us together? What's going to keep us together is what always has kept us together as a nation. The fact that people come here to work, they're entrepreneurial, they believe in democracy, they're people of good faith, they have the same values that have always made America great. And I hope we'll continue to do so if we can get the policy right.
2: Julian Castro, you. your time is up. Thank you very much. So, a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening statements of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to introduce Chris Kobach, who is Secretary of State for the state of Kansas and who also gets around the country quite a bit, consulting uh, as a lawyer uh, for other states on immigration laws. Uh, He was the co-author of Arizona's controversial SB 1070. You're also defending laws. Now, Hissing, please. You're also defending laws in, I believe, Missouri, Texas. Where else? Um, Nebraska. Nebraska. Uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Now, do people in Kansas take think you're not taking the Secretary of State thing out seriously? If you're you're well, getting I'm, around
1: I'm, so much, I'm making plenty of noise
2: there too. Okay, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Chris Colback.
1: Thank you. My work uh, in terms of immigration policy at the national level began in uh, 2001 when I served as counsel to John Ashcroft at the Justice Department, and after I left the Justice Department in 2003, I left with a very important idea in in my head, and that was that the rule of law had broken down in immigration, and much had to be done to restore it, but it had to be done not only at the national level, but also at the state level, and that's why I got involved helping states like Arizona and many other states. In 2007, for the first time, every state in the country saw legislation introduced into the state legislature to uh, in some way restrict or slow down the pace of immigration into that state. Not all of them passed, but that's an important point. Every state is a border state now. Now, the reason that nearly all of the states on the map are trying to take steps to discourage illegal immigration is several-fold. But the number one driver is a very important point in this debate, and I'd like to start there. The fiscal cost, fiscal cost, the cost to governments, to taxpayers, to illegal immigration in particular, is unsustainable. My point can be summarized in one sentence by Nobel laureate Milton Friedman. He said, it's just obvious. You can't have open immigration and a welfare state. There is an important distinction that needs to be made between the current wave of immigration, which started in the 80s and has been going unabated for three decades, and all preceding waves of immigration. They were not immigrating into a welfare state. They were immigrating into a situation where they rose or they fell based on their own merits. There was no safety net to catch them. Now, the average per household consumption, net consumption of public services and benefits is estimated from a 2007 figures to be $19,400 per year net. They're consuming, and this is all immigrants, the illegal and legal combined, 19400 per year more in services than they're paying in in taxes. So that's a net drag uh, on the fiscal uh, status of the country. 71% of illegal alien households are consuming some form of welfare. 52% of lawfully present alien-headed households are consuming some form of welfare. In contrast, only 39% of U.S. citizen-headed households are consuming some form of welfare. Now, the explanation for this is obvious. It has nothing to do with ethnicity or nationality. It has everything to do with economics and demographics. Poor people are more likely to consume welfare. If you look at all immigrants combined, about two-thirds have a high school education or less. And so we are importing a very impoverished uh, set of immigrants, both legal and illegal, into the country. Hazleton, Pennsylvania, one of the cities that I'm representing, they saw their uh, population explode from 20,000 in the year year 2000 to about 30,000 five years later. 50% increase in population. But they get most of their revenue from an earned income tax, and their revenue remained flat. Population goes up 50%, no additional tax revenue. That was because most of the additional uh, people coming in were working at a meatpacking plant nearby, were illegal aliens, and they were either earning too little income to pay any taxes or they were earning purely cash income and the city wasn't getting any revenues. The same thing is happening at the national level. Or take it on the individual level. Look at the jobs. There are 14 million Americans out of work. A vast majority of the 11.3 million illegal aliens have those jobs. About seven million are in the workforce. Many states are realizing a simple truth. If you want to create a real job for a US citizen tomorrow deport an illegal alien today. It actually works. But of course, many of you are probably thinking, and I'm sure we'll hear from the other side, that those are jobs Americans won't do. Well, the statistics don't bear that out. Because in every single one of the industry, industrial sectors where illegal aliens are prominent, U.S. citizens still have the majority of jobs there. And they're working right alongside the illegal aliens who are, who are uh, depressing the wages or taking their jobs outright. So if we care about our fiscal health and if we care about the Americans who are struggling to put food on the table, we should look very seriously at our immigration problem in the United States. Thank you, Chris Colbeck. I'm John Donvan, and
2: you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. The motion is, don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Stay with us. This is our motion. Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And now here to speak against the motion, Tamar Jacoby. Uh, Actually had a long career as a journalist, was a writer, uh, justice reporter for Newsweek, then was deputy uh, editor of the op-ed page of the New York Times, uh, and then you went on to write books about immigration, and now you're running an organization called Immigration Works, which uh, you're you're not approaching this from the left, but you're actually looking at it from the point of view of the small businessman whom your organization assists. And Tamar, I just want to say I'm very glad to hear about the post-journalism career success, (laughs) personally. It's very heartening. You you too
4: (laughs) could go into politics. Ladies and
2: gentlemen, Tamar Jacoby.
4: Thank you so much, and thank you so much to the sponsors of this event. So let's start by being honest. Um, immigration is about economics. It's driven by economics for the people who get up in their home villages and come here, and it's driven by economics for the Americans who hire them. And the bottom line is, it turns out to be an economic win-win. Immigrants create jobs, and contrary to what you've just heard from Chris Kobach, it's counterintuitive, I know, but you heard me right, immigrants create jobs. It's easy to see how that works on the high end. The 25% of the doctors in America who are foreign-born, the 25% of the nurses, the Half of all of our science and engineering PhDs who are foreign born. But it's true at the low end too, immigrants create jobs. And again, I know this gets even more counterintuitive, but you know, I'll never forget hearing, this is really what, what partly brought me to do what exactly I'm doing now, hearing the man who ran a seafood processing plant on the eastern shore of Maryland talk about his company. He came to the floor of the Senate and he did this. And he talked about, he had a hundred year old family company the, the, the native-born people on the eastern shore no longer wanted to do the hard seasonal work, right? Americans like full year-round jobs, no one wanted to do the hard seasonal work of picking the crab out of the shell. So he brought Mexican women every summer to pick those crabs out of the shell. But because he had those those seasonal workers, he could actually keep his company open in a way that he wouldn't have been able to if he didn't have them. And because he kept his economy his company open, that was a job for the manager in the company and the people who packed package the seafood and the accountant in the company. And because he could keep his company open, that was seafood for the restaurants in the town where tourists came to eat seafood. And because those restaurants and the seafood, hotels, gas stations, insurers, you can get the picture. Up and down the food chain, those lowly lowest bottom of the totem pole seafood pickers were keeping an economy going. We have holes at the top and the bottom of the workforce, and we're lucky that they're filled by immigrants who, because they're different from Americans, either more or less skilled, they're complementary, not competitive, they create jobs for Americans. And this is really where I differ from my opponents in this debate. I, too, am for the rule of law. I, too, am for security and effective enforcement. But I also think we need to be honest about our needs. It doesn't really work, I don't think, to have two signs at the border, one that says keep out and one that says help wanted. I don't think that's an honest, stand-up way to go about our business. And as you listen tonight, what I think you should be asking yourself is is the best way accepting reality, um, allowing people to be here legally, treating them with dignity, or is the best way pretending that we don't need these workers, pretending that we can drive them out when we can't, and driving them further underground.
2: Thank you. To Marja Kobe. And now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at an Intelligence Squared U.S. debate at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Our motion is don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. We have two teams of two members each who have been arguing it out. So I'd, I'd like to go to the side that is arguing for the motion, arguing don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And uh, Tom Tancredo, you, you were talking about the notion that right now we're importing poverty. And I want to ask you then... Who is welcome? Who are the immigrants that are welcome? Well, the people that
0: uh, Tamar and the mayor referred to um, as being these startup companies, these affluent, uh, or at least people who became affluent and had all these skills, uh, great, fine, it's, it's wonderful. But I'm, only t- I'm telling you that that's not what our immigration policy is today. Today, it is based almost entirely on something called family unification. And because we've had so many people coming into the country over such a long period of time, from such low skill low edge backgrounds, that that's who we get. And, and take 30 to 15 seconds to describe the dynamic of family unification. Well, sure. It's, if you get here, once you get here and get status here, status as someone here legally, you can begin the process of bringing in your family, bringing in the immediate family, then bringing in extended and family. And the problem being? The problem being it's coming exactly from the same group of people, the same economic group especially, that is predominantly low-skilled, low-wage workers. When we have, right now, um, at least – by the way, this is also legal – I'm talking legal immigration. As well. Let alone the people that are coming across the borders illegally. Not many of those people are there – have these kinds of skills
2: you're talking about that are so desperately needed. Let's hear
3: a response from the other side.
2: Julian Castro, who is mayor
3: of San Antonio. Thank you very much. Uh, First – uh, the argument is built on this idea, again, that that uh, immigrants, both legal and illegal, are somehow uh, soaking up uh, welfare payments and, and other state subsidies, which is not borne out by the evidence. Uh, they do pay state income taxes and, in some cases, federal income taxes. They also pay sales taxes Anytime they go and buy something. They pay hotel occupancy taxes every time they go into a motel or a hotel. They pay car rental taxes when they rent a car. They pay uh, all types of fees to the government that help the government run and also patronize businesses and spend their money, and they have a tremendous economic impact on every local community. In they fact, do. Let me ask Chris, that, Chris Colbert. That is true. An economic Tom, impact, your,
0: not Let me positive. bring in your
2: partner, Chris Colbert. I just want, yeah. I, Chris, be- I just want you to respond to what we just heard because I think that's news to a lot of people. A long list of taxes in which, in fact which the immigrants
1: are paying. It true is, or not? It is true that, uh, that aliens, legal and illegal, of course pay sales taxes. They may indirectly pay property taxes. They may pay some income taxes if they're working under a false social security number. I'm talking about the illegal aliens here. Which, by the but way, they'll never be able that. to claim. But the fiscal impact is undisputed. Now, there are some economic studies that look at the overall impact. You know, have, you, have we cheapened the price of some goods? Have we given some economic benefits. But if you narrow it to the fiscal impact, it is undisputed. Every single study in the last 10 years, it shows statistically that they are consuming these fiscal the fiscal uh, uh, benefits. And if you just look at in terms of the benefit to us as taxpayers, we're losing on the okay, deal. Okay, let's go well, to so, Marjorie I mean again it all just opponent.
4: depends how you how you measure it and how you look at it. If you look at what most in, immigrants pay their taxes to the federal level because they have their income tax withheld from their paycheck. So if you look at the not just at the state level but the federal level as well, and you look over their whole lifetimes, they actually pay in about as much as they take out. Because what costs is health and education. Big uh, no. The federal government's own numbers say they're ten billion what in the costs whole every year. Is, is health and education, but then they turn into earners and taxpayers. And so, if you look over their whole lives and you look at the federal story as well, it's about an even even. Social Security, they pay in every year about seven billion dollars
0: that they don't take out. You can argue with this with CIS and other studies, but the National Academy of Sciences shows that you're not correct, Tamar, when you suggest that this isn't a, a fiscal drain on this country. It most certainly is. That's not what that study found. It is common sense. If you come here without, a, without a, uh, a, an ability to provide a service that is well paid for, you are not going to be able to pay the income taxes you're talking about, but you are undeniably going to require the services—the services for your children, the children who are in the public school system, the services and for I, the, and the, I the social services, the, the social service the future. Benefits.
4: I consider educating the workforce for the future not as a welfare benefit, but an investment yeah, in the country.
0: Seat,
2: to Marci, yeah. sometime sure. to your colleague, Julian Castro. An
0: investment. Well, Tom, okay. Tom, how about Tom, the investment in to bring our prison in system? Castro.
3: Well, uh, what Congressman Tancredo may remember as well is that in 2006, the Republican State Comptroller of Texas did an analysis that said that uh, – that analyzed how much revenue, state revenue, had been generated by illegal immigrants and found it at $1.58 uh, billion and said that $1.16 in state resources had been taken by illegal immigrants. And so this, this idea that it just is so clear-cut across the country, that's not true.
2: Moving on to a, a different part of this argument, and that's the assimilation argument. Your opponent's raising the concern that the wave of immigrants that we're talking about, for the most part, poor immigrants and illegal immigrants as well, that they're not, becoming, they're not really becoming part of the culture. They come to dip their toes and to remain speaking Spanish and to
3: remain uh, with the dream of going back home, ultimately, and not really buying in. Can you take that on? Sure. I'd say first uh, that it's been a common theme in American history, this impulse to believe that anyone who is is other then the dominant majority is somehow going to poison the culture. You know, the idea is that you see a, a common trajectory, no matter whether it's the Germans that Benjamin Franklin was talking about, the Chinese that we tried to exclude, or today, the Hispanic cultures. Right, but I, I, think, that, I think your America. opponents are
2: arguing that in s- several ways, this time it's different. And I, I want to go back to Tom Tincredo on this issue of assimilation. It's, and why is it different?
0: What happened in the past is that the, the numbers allowed for... And and also the timeouts allowed for an assimilation process. Even if people didn't want to, they were almost forced into it. In order to get ahead in the country, of course, there was the issue of of English. My grandparents, I can remember so distinctly, my grandmother and grandfather, um, you know, are... Uh, the back seat of the car, Sunday afternoon drive. Uh, after a couple hours, they, they were, had been together for probably long enough in that close of proximity, so they started to argue about things. And, and my grandfather would lapse into Italian, and my grandmother would yell at him, "Speak American, damn it!" And, and it, was, it was her purpose. And, and, and it was you're saying them, there's a critical mass. Forced,
2: you're saying there's a critical mass in this case that makes it different. That, it that makes it much more I, difficult to I just but want to see facts. what, what your how, what the other side, responds to that. People
4: in the second generation, even problem. among poor mech, children of poor Mexico, everyone learns English, and the third generation, three-quarters of the people can't speak
1: Spanish anymore, can't speak to their grandmother. There's a tipping point. If the percentage of the uh, immigrant population is so high and is so disproportionately speaking one language or sharing one culture, then the pressure from the rest of us the rest of the american society on that group to assimilate but is Chris, lower. But that's Chris, just the point a that was just made by our seeing. The point that was just seeing. made was
2: for example a policy that you mentioned before of denying in state tuition prices uh, pr- price, uh, is, tuition is, prices to immigrants actually uh, acts to 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 stifle assimilation because no, those are going to be kids who
1: won't be going to school. No, it actually acts to encourage people to leave and comply with the law and go home. That's the idea. That's just, now, but let me let me give one more one more point on one more point on assimilation. And that is one of the greatest engines of assimilation, I assume we can all agree on this, is the public schools. According to a study done at a high school in San Diego, I think in 2002 or 2003, after three years of high school, the proportion of students self-identifying themselves as Americans went down 50%. The proportion saying they were hyphenated Americans, in other words, in Mexican-American or something like that, went down 30%. And the number that they were saying they are a foreign nationality, after three years of high school, went up 52%. And that study
4: was done in the middle of the battle over, over Prop 187, which was denying benefits to immigrants, and had commercials on oh, TV okay. saying, stop them coming. I know the study you're talking about, Rumbaugh's study. And what he was showing was that when there's an anti-immigrant climate, people get alienated and identify with their. Group and that's exactly what I would argue your side is creating is an anti-immigrant climate that drives people to identify with their group and not assimilate.
2: Do you see the logic? I just want to. I just want to. I'm not taking sides, but, 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 but. But Tamar Jacoby has presented a logical uh, explanation there. I'd just like you to take it sure. on.
0: Sure, it's a, the logical Tom argument. Pencredo. Is this if people come into this country illegally, especially illegally, we should all go. Well, you're an immigrant and therefore we should be happy about the fact you're here. We should not, we should not raise our concerns about it. We should not say that people should come into the country the legal way. There is a door. 165,000 people a month come in today still legally. We are the most liberal country in the world with regard to to, uh, uh, legal immigration. But the minute we start talking about the fact that people are violating American laws to get here, that's all of a sudden making it an uncomfortable place for immigrants. Well, baloney. I I will not accept the idea that you can't talk... The, the rule of law. Yeah, uh, and yeah that, that is a good question. Are you
4: guys against just illegal immigration or are you against immigration period?
1: I'm telling you. I, yeah. I, what we are in favor of is increasing the percentage of aliens who are exactly the ones you're talking about, the job creators, the entrepreneurs that are starting the companies. The way you increase that percentage is you reduce illegal immigration to zero. And you change our priorities about legal immigration, and you give higher preference to people who are skilled. And, and, and we can who, accept well, the cream of the crop. Who, and who's,
4: who's going to grow our food, and who's going to take care of our old people, and who's going to work uh, in hospitals? Uh,
1: well, the, the 14 million unemployed Americans would be a starter. And, uh. um, and Okay,
2: I'd like to go to questions uh, from the audience. And there's uh, and this gentleman in uh, the front row in a blue shirt. Hi.
4: Yeah, actually, the mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, he's been talking a lot about um, an immigration policy that would allow a lot more individuals to come in from all different classes, but that would be focused on, you know, having these immigrants come in a little bit more quickly, a little bit easier, but they would agree to stay in cities that are necessarily in decline, like Detroit, for a period of two to three years or five years. I'm just curious. Does that change any positions on either side, and could that be a viable plan that could maybe bring so us together? So he's
2: saying together? there is a place. <laughs>
1: Chris well, call you want to? Uh, seems um, like everyone wins. Mayor yeah,
0: of no. Detroit had already responded to that, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah Mayor Bloomberg, you notice he didn't suggest that the that they, uh, illegal aliens come to uh, any particular borough of New York. And, and the uh, citizens of Detroit weren't asked whether, you know, they're facing unemployment, whether they would like a large number uh, of unskilled uh, folks to come in and help. Uh revive their economy by taking the jobs that they 're already yeah, not getting. in I mean, Castro. They, 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 right, okay to they, make light
4: of this, but i mean it 's true Look, go to any immigrant neighborhood they revitalize the neighborhoods they open shops, they open restaurants they 've taken burnt out neighborhoods across the country and revitalized them on um, the same way they create small businesses and their and their and their consumers it's yes i mean i don 't know if we really want to send them all to Detroit, but um, but the truth is immigrants bring economic vitality and they create jobs it's Castro, something yeah
3: uh, first the uh, studies have shown that that immigrants as a class uh, have a higher rate of founding businesses than native-born U.S. folks. Mayor Bloomberg is correct, uh, and and that's why he has made the economic argument very powerfully for uh, both more legal immigration and then doing something with the 11 million folks who are here uh, illegally. It is not realistic that you're going to deport 11 million people. Uh, because it would decimate the American economy, and because, and this isn't about dollars and cents, but because these people are human beings. They're T- human Tom beings. Tom Tom Crater, do you want to weigh in this?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, uh, what our opponents have done here, is very skillfully, really great at it, and, and I give them credit for setting up all kinds of straw man arguments, you know. Um, I have never once, in, in as many millions of words as I've expended on this topic, suggested everybody's got to be deported. All I've ever said is, look, all you have to do is obey the law. All you have to do is restrict the ability of a, an employer to give a job to somebody who is here illegally. People self-deport when that happens. It happened in Arizona. You do not have to round people up. These are all canards. These are all things that people on the other side say to make it look as though we're all people who are just waiting and, and, and biding our time until we can get these people out of our you, country. Your, and your that's sto- so even, that even a, worse than deportation. Why the, the, is it hard the, to the suggest behind... that obeying the law would be a good way to deal with immigration problems. what's the deal? This policy, the theory
4: behind the policy that, that Tom Creator and Chris Kobach are advocates for is called attrition through enforcement. It's let's make immigrants' lives so miserable that they go home of their own accord. First of all, it doesn't work. Many of the immigrants the who are doesn't. here, the unauthorized immigrants are people who've been here for five years, 10 years, 20 years, who own homes, who own businesses, who are married to legal Americans and have citizen children. You might get few to go home, but most are not going to go home. And honestly, I don't think that's how we want to deal with this population. These are people who we said, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, come on in, do some work for us. And now we're saying, let's make their lives so miserable that it will drive them home. I don't think that's the way to deal with it. Statistically,
1: attrition through enforcement works. And it's basically the idea, it's the same law enforcement approach you have. If you have a a, a section of Highway 95 where there are no police officers patrolling, you don't say, well, the only options are to have an amnesty, i.e. have no speed limit, or to catch 100% of the speed no, which would mean to. But Chris, I,
2: I don't want our eyes to glaze over with the answer. Okay. But when, okay, you say, when you say statistically,
1: can you give us yes. a sense of what you mean? Um, we have the numbers. Arizona, more than any other state, has tried to encourage people to leave, give disincentives, take away public benefits. From middle of 2008 to middle of 2009, the overall illegal alien population in the United States dropped 7 percent. in Arizona, even. it dropped 18 percent, more than double the national average. Right, so and the only difference home, but was most the of them enforcement. Didn't
4: go home, they went to other neighboring states. Oh, well, oh right, Me- Mexico. Uh, why isn't why home. did the Mexican?
2: Why did that doesn't disprove their point no, no, that you it, want it, to get what, out of Arizona?
4: That's true, but it, but it does make the point that they um, home is Mexico Why did, not why did President wait, 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 to many a... of these people anymore. Mexico, they've been out of Mexico for 10 or 15 or more years married to Americans. They have citizen children. Mexico's not home anymore.
2: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Stay with us. Welcome back. Our motion is don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. This is debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are in the question and answer section of the debate. I'm John Donovan of ABC News. We have two teams of two sides, each arguing this motion. Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And now it's just some more questions.
0: The pro side has talked about potential
4: changes to our existing immigration policy, and I wonder if the against side would also talk about what changes you would make, because I think most people would agree that what we have now doesn't work tremendously well. So the key and the most important thing is that we give the workers who we're going to need in the future a way to come legally. When the economy picks up and Americans go back to their better jobs and their year-round jobs and we, and they start to go to restaurants and they start to go to hotels and we start to build houses again, we're going to need immigrant workers. And in that day, I say we want to have them come legally. I also think we need enforcement. Our opponents aren't wrong about enforcement. We do need better enforcement on the border and better enforcement in the workplace to make sure we need to create legal channels, and enforce against the people who are coming illegally. And we need some answer for the 11 million people who are already here and are not going home no matter how miserable we make them with police stops and other things. The best answer for illegal immigration is a legal immigration system that works. If people are coming to work here, give them a legal way to come and then stop the ones who are coming illegally. I would also just add really,
3: very quickly that, that this idea that everybody agrees that they broke the law. But there are a million different ways that people break the law every single day of the year. And, for instance, if you break the law and you're speeding, one of the models that's out there is something called deferred adjudication. Basically, under deferred adjudication, you still get punished either by paying a fine or doing community service. And as long as you don't commit another crime within a certain amount of time, you're able basically to wipe that off your record and get on with your life. That happens millions and millions of times. I would imagine just about every state in the United States something like that. It's not like the model is not there already. Chris Amnesty is is a
1: horrible idea for four quick idea for four reasons. Number one, you're going to see that the fiscal impact is going to triple. The eighty nine point one billion dollars a year that we're losing fiscally, is going to become $2.6 trillion over 10 years. That was according to the Robert Rector study in 2007. The reason is simple. Right now, illegal aliens get food stamps, Medicaid, free school lunches, K-12 education. If they become legalized, then they get the big ones. Then they get Medicare and Social Security. And the price goes way, way up. Number two, it won't just be $11.3 million. The last time we had a major amnesty in 1986, according to the INS's own records, 398,000 illegal aliens quickly came across the border to falsely claimed that they were already here and grabbed the amnesty. Number three, the notion that we are going to suddenly sift through this population and know who the terrorists are and who they aren't is demonstrably false. Number four, it's a slap in the face to the people who did it the right way.
4: No, no one's talking about amnesty. We're talking about asking people to make restitution and get right with the law. Nobody's talking about uh, amnesty. Yeah, a slap yeah. on
1: the wrist and then you get to stay. That's called amnesty.
3: No, I would say, Chris, that, that, that that's an open question. In other words, how much are you going to punish, just bluntly, how can you punish them for having broken the law? I think that there is room to maneuver among reasonable people there. No From, punishment uh,
2: Third row?
0: I'm really concerned about the argument, the fiscal argument that uh, this group over here is making uh, in regards to the fiscal impact. When you support the attrition through enforcement um, strategy, that strategy has detained hundreds of thousands of people. Almost 400,000 people were deported last year. There's about 30,000 immigrants detained in facilities all across our country that is costing $1.7 billion dollars. There's So so
2: you're you're saying there's a cost to enforcement? There's a cost. Chris Kolbach.
1: As a lawyer who's worked in this area, you're right. It's about 30,000 who are detained. Those are people in deportation proceedings. We call them removal proceedings. But that's a small percentage of the total number of people who are being removed from the country in any given time. And the reason that 30,000 is actually too low is that if you do not detain an alien while he is in removal proceedings, and then the judge says at the end of the uh, the immigration removal pre- hearing, you are deported, hands him a removal letter, 93% will abscond. They will leave. They will disobey the letter. And it's known among the immigration attorneys as a run letter. And so if you don't detain... They don't go. And if we believe that our courts have any meaning and are nothing more than just a laughing stock, we have got to try to detain the ones that present the highest uh, risk of leaving. But the,
4: but the point is the whole system is broken.
1: Gentleman in purple tie.
4: Um, the uh, con side has both been saying that there's not enough legal immigration. But has been briefly mentioned we do accept uh, one million permanent legal immigrants each year and, about, and nearly a million uh, temporary workers. And that number has not gone down since the recession. So That's Mr. Actually- Kobe says that you support, we don't need it now, so would you support a moratorium until the um, jobs go back up? And also, how many people, 15 million people, apply for the diversity lottery alone So how many do you want in the country legally So so the point is that the market works really well to attract people. When times are good, the market attracts people, and when times are bad, people get the signal all the way to their villages in Mexico, and they don't come. Since the downturn, half as many people have been coming every year from Mexico, half. We should be happy about that. that That's attrition by bad economy, though. Exactly. No. We no. should be happy and, and... that the market sends the signals. And Tom the Tancredo. system that I think we should have is, is a way for when the market is good and attracting people, those people who are coming to work should be able to come legally. I don't Tom think we Tom want Tancredo. people working here and being...
0: Uh, Tamara apparently agrees that jobs are the attraction. Without the jobs, they don't come. Without the jobs, they go back. Therefore, it's an enforcement issue. Something that's called um, right now—it's a, a program that's voluntary. It should be mandatory. It's called eVerify. It's just a requirement that every employer use a process E-Verify. that actually verifies whether the person is, is has got a good social security number. Now, can it be? Can it, there can it be problems? Of course, you can steal lo, uh, social security, but it's a great use of a tool that's out there that would not cost a great deal of money. It's an easy process, and it would have the effect, if is right, that people won't come if they hear there are no jobs. It would have the effect, I think, also of saying, I but will leave if there, there are no jobs. And industrial. so many people left, by well, the way. So industrial. many people left in Arizona. Let me
3: just say that, uh, that I agree that that, uh, that jobs are what drive folks over here. I disagree with the idea that if those jobs aren't there at a given time, that they're necessarily just going to go back. These folks, let's say that you've had a job for 12 years, 13 years, and you've had and you're married now and you have children who are United States citizens. For the children, the United States is home. Mexico or wherever they're from is not home.
2: Sir, to the far right, if you could stand up. What would you
3: tell to the
0: people like the teenagers, low-skilled American worker, uh, people with the minority communities who uh, are trying to get jobs? but yet some of those jobs have been taken by um, illegal immigrants, and so, those are those jobs they could have probably had. So
4: I work with seasonal employees. I just did a survey of a couple hundred of, of actually probably up to 500 seasonal employers. These are like resorts and remote places, and yes, this year a little uptick in the numbers of Americans showing up, but then when they learn that it's only a seasonal job, and how, how, that it's physically, that it's outside and that it's, that it's not going to lead to anything, that they're going to have to leave at the end people are not taking those jobs. They're staying for maybe a few weeks and then leaving. The Americans are not competing with immigrants. They're mostly doing jobs that Americans do not are not wanting to do.
1: Let's not talk about one anecdote. Let's talk about data in whole industries. There's no industry that expresses this more than the meatpacking industry. The meatpacking industry 30 years ago was almost entirely worked by U.S. citizens. But today, the meatpacking industry is about half and half, about half illegal aliens, half U.S. citizens. There was a raid in Georgia a few years ago, and they had two to 300 uh, employees were arrested. What happened? Wages went up. They had to go up. They went from 675 an hour and, and, and then they went up to 775 an hour. And what happened was u.S citizens and legal aliens started taking the jobs once the wages got high enough. You're leaving That's at, exactly you're leaving what, what has The turnover to
4: happen. also went up. The turnover went through the roof because people do the jobs for a little while and then they don't want to
1: do them anymore. 20 years ago, the average wage in meatpacking was about $12 an hour. Been, now it's about $8 an hour. And that's not in real dollars. That's in absolute and, dollars. And, that's There's no okay, other I, and that's, I have to separate you because driven, that concludes
2: round two of our oh debate.
1: no.
4: Not there.
2: We're about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And here to argue against the motion, against the don't, Julian Castro, mayor of San Antonio, Texas, the seventh largest city in the United States.
3: All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving us this audience this evening. Uh, You heard arguments on both sides uh, tonight. uh, But I want you to think about, uh, at the end of the day, uh, what the United States of America stands for what it stood for from its founding and what it stands for in this year, 2011. The United States has always stood for opening up the doors of opportunity to folks around the world. And that means that through the years, there have been many folks who came here legally, and there have also been many folks who came here illegally. It is undisputed that folks who are both legal and illegal are making an enormous economic contribution to the United States. In fact, depending on the studies, whether it's a 1% difference or a 3% difference, they are contributing in taxes, in creating jobs for others, in economic impact, in founding companies. And our folks on the other side are trying to have it both ways, to say that, yes, throughout history we've become the number one economy in the world because of all of these immigrants, and many of them were illegal during that time as well, but something has changed. We have to change the entire identity of the country. I don't believe that that's true. I believe that the evidence bears out that, yes, we can uh, strengthen our enforcement, uh, but we need to deal with the 11 million folks who are here illegally, punish them for the fact that they broke the law, and then give them a chance at the back, at the end of the line, to become citizens eventually, and to deal with the fact that the American economy needs these influx of workers In 2012, we'll have the oldest average age for an American worker in our history, 41.6 years. We have a declining workforce that must be replenished by immigrants to the United States. And there's no better place to deliver that message than New York City, the city of immigrants that has become the greatest city in the world.
2: Thank you, Julian Castro. Your time is up. Our motion is... Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, and here to argue for the motion for the don't. Tom Tancredo, a former congressman from Colorado. For America, um, I I think all of us at this table want exactly what has been expressed, uh,
0: Julian, by you. Uh, Certainly, an opportunity for people who come here, uh, um, an opportunity to do great things. Um, I also want for people who live here, for people who are on the lowest rung of the economic ladder in this country, to also have an opportunity to have the ability to actually get a job, progress through the system, and and especially the ones... I'm talking about the ones that have done it the right way. There's no group of people in the United States that's more negatively impacted by massive immigration, both legal and illegal, of low-skilled, low-wage people than the people who are here legally who are low-skilled, low-wage people. They are our citizens. Why is it so hard for us to think about them to think about their needs. For the most part, you know, when we're talking about the immigration process and these people, they came the right way. And by the way, this has nothing to do with race, ethnicity—absolutely nothing. People try to cast it in that light because they want to move the the discussion away from the real problems and to this boogeyman of racism. There's—is it out there? Of course. But it, I, I'll tell you what—it does not motivate me. All I want is for this country to achieve its goals. I want it to be the place, yeah, that still everybody wants to come because we have a vibrant economy in which most of the people here are doing well. And in fact, all of the people are doing well. And this Thanks, is Tom Tancredo,
2: in- your time's up. Thank okay. you. Our motion is don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And here to argue against the motion, Tamar Jacoby, who is president and CEO of Immigration Works USA.
4: Well, in closing, I would just like to sharpen the choice for you a little bit. I think what you've heard is we all agree that the immigration system we have isn't working, but we differ in a very sharp way about what the solution is. Our opponents say that the solution has one dimension. It's enforcement and enforcement only. We say that the solution has has several dimensions. Yes, it's enforcement. Yes, it's security. But it's also a legal immigration system that works. The best antidote to illegal immigration is a legal immigration system that works. And The other place we disagree is we disagree over whether immigration and and really the economy in America and American life is a zero sum game or not. Our opponents are saying they have a vision of America that leaves no room for people with energy and grit and entrepreneurialism who want to come here and make better lives for their families, but also make America a better place. Their vision leaves no room for for hope and for an expansive America. Their vision is that there's never. Enough of anything, and that it's a zero-sum game. And our point is that that's just not true in America. Yes, we're in a hard time now, but that hard time is not going to last forever. Immigrants don't take jobs; they create them. Immigrants don't threaten us; they bring talent and vitality. American culture and society haven't lost their appeal. Immigrants are as drawn to them as ever, and immigrants are still still integrating or assimilating every bit as fast as they did in the past. So, I think the notion is exactly wrong. Shutting the gates now would be a disastrous policy. We need immigrants to create jobs and grow, and that need's only going to get stronger as the economy recovers. Just saying no isn't an answer. It's a fantasy, and it's an un-American fantasy at that.
2: Thank you, Tamar Jacoby. Our motion is don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, and here to argue for the motion. Chris Kobach, Secretary of State of Kansas and co-author of Arizona's SB 1070, Illegal Immigration Law.
1: I just want to address a couple of loose ends quickly. Uh, Julian just mentioned this notion that if we had an amnesty, it would be just fine. It would be fair because the illegal aliens would go to the end of the line. Legally speaking, that's impossible. When you have an amnesty, you immediately give lawful status to the people who are here. They have been automatically given what four to five million people are waiting for who are trying to do it the right way. There's no such thing as the end of the line. As soon as you grant an amnesty, the person is automatically at the front of the line. And then we heard from them earlier that we shouldn't have a policy that fluctuates, encourages immigration in some years, it discourages it depending on the needs of the U.S. economy. It should be pretty much wide open all the time. No, that's exactly what we want. We want immigration policy that is legal and that meets the interests of the United States because we owe our highest duty to our own citizens. And finally, we, talk, we hear about this point again and again, and, and they're encouraging this myth of, of belief that there are jobs Americans won't do, and we have to bring them in for the lower end jobs because Americans won't do those jobs. Now, remember I told you the statistics Americans are doing those jobs, but there's a there's a a cultural problem with that argument, too. It's encouraging high school kids today, many of whom have never pulled on the starter cord of a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine, to believe that certain jobs are beneath them. I would say that is un-America. Our country was built on manual labor. Everybody going through a period in their life when they worked a job like that, and then they moved on. Well, this attitude of let the immigrants do those jobs is a pernicious attitude in our society. And so I conclude... (laughs) I conclude with this don't give us your tired and your poor because our tired and our poor American citizens who are disproportionately minority and who are are out of work need those jobs. They need also the welfare state to survive. And those things are not going to happen if you grant a massive amnesty or you have unbridled illegal immigration continuing, which an amnesty would further. So let's look after our own tired and our own poor and then look at immigration in terms of what serves our national interest. Thank you, Chris Kobach. And that concludes our closing statements. All right. So it's all in. I've been given
2: the results. Remember, the team that changes the most minds is declared our victor. Our motion is don't give us. You're tired. You're poor. You're huddled masses. Here are the results. Before the debate, 16 percent were for the motion. 54 percent were against and 30 percent undecided. After the debate, 35 percent are for the motion. That is up 19 percent. 52% 52% are against, it's down 2%, and 13% undecided. The side for the motion carries the arguments. Our congratulations to them. Don't give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses has carried the day. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. And become a fan of Intelligence Squared U.S. on Facebook. Sign up and receive 15% off tickets to our live events. Just go to www.facebook.com forward slash think2twice. You can also follow us on Twitter at IQ2US. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.